Well, I appreciate all the kind words, and uh, we will be looking at Romans 14 and 15 again this morning, kind of a part two from last week. Uh, But I felt like at the very beginning, we should probably talk about the elephant in the room. Yes, it is my birthday today. It is, and I know you're wondering how old I am, and so I'm not going to tell you exactly, uh, sort of. Uh, But I can tell you that uh, 1957, 57 was a great year for preachers and Chevys, and and that after today, I now know uh, the answer to the question uh, that Paul McCartney wondered uh, a long time ago, will you still need me, will you still feed me when I'm 64, so there you have it, Um, there you go, my sister Allison Her husband, Ernest, are here today. Our brother has already called and wished me happy birthday. And uh, what a blessing it is to be able to share uh, wonderful, joyous moments (laughs) with uh, friends and family. And that's certainly been a blessing for me um, all this week. And since if you follow me on Facebook, you know I've been celebrating and eating since Wednesday. So, but today is the actual uh, day. Uh, This picture was at the end of last week's sermon. You remember? Uh, the salad and the smoothie, and I said that one of those is the way the church should be, and the other one probably isn't. Which one was the way the church should be? The church should be like a salad. The church is like a salad, not a smoothie. A smoothie, as we said, is one of those that gets put through the mixer, and everything is blended, the blender, and everything is comes out. There's a bunch of ingredients in there, but you can't tell that by looking at it. Um, And in some ways, you can't even tell that by tasting it. But with a salad, you see all kinds of different things. And yes, I did find a picture of all the things that Bill loves in a salad. It took me a while, but I did. And, uh, And so it's got all those different ingredients in the salad, but you can still see them. You can still tell what they are. And, and you can still taste all of the differences. Well, the church isn't a smoothie. The church is more like a salad. It's composed of a lot of different ingredients, a lot of different types of people, a lot of different personality styles, a lot of different gifts and interests, a lot of different ministry needs. The church is like a salad, not a smoothie. And the church can have unity, but not uniformity. And that's a pretty bold statement, don't you think? Bill, are you, are you saying that it's impossible for the church to have uniformity? Well, no, not not necessarily. If there's only one member in the church, then yes, they can have uniformity. But if there are two or more, (laughs) then there's not going to be uniformity because there's going to be some differences of opinion and beliefs on certain things. But that doesn't mean the church can't be united. The church can have unity, but not uniformity. Uh, The church can have unity only in diversity. Why? Because we are diverse, and we will always be diverse. And so the question is not, should the church be diverse or not? Is the church going to have diversity or not? That question is already answered. Yes, the church is going to have diversity. The question is, will the church have unity in the midst of that diversity? But that diversity is by design. It is exactly as God intended. That unity, however, is only possible if we treat each other with love, respect, and humility. And that's when, according to Jesus, the world will know that we are his and that he has sent us. He says that exact thing in John 17. 
He says the world will know that we're with him if we love one another. And that's John 13. Psalm 133 says, how wonderful and great it is when God's people live together in unity, not uniformity, but in unity. Appreciate so much our shepherd Wade and your comments today, right on target. And the prayer that you led, because that is exactly the truth. We will always be diverse and we're always going to have diversity. But the question is, can we have unity in diversity? Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, they all acknowledge the diverse nature of the church. And yet in the midst of all of that, there can be unity. So as we uh, complete this study of Romans 14 and 15, which really we've been kind of leading to through this whole series, as Paul, I think, has led to through the whole book of Romans. In many ways, I think the reason he wrote this book was because of chapters 14 and 15 and what he had to say there. That's how important it is. So first of all, a review of principles from last Sunday's sermon on Romans 14, 1 through 15, 7. And no, I'm not going to preach that sermon again. It is on our archives, and you're welcome to uh, look at that um, and, uh, and uh, uh, continue to consider those things. But I will share some of the main points that we made through that study. Uh, first of all, accept the one whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Romans 14, verse 1 says that exact thing. And I realize we may have some discussion about what exactly is a disputable matter, but that's one of those areas where we, as respectful, humble, loving family members, brethren, consider that can be done. Secondly, the strong ought to bear with the weak. The strong ought to bear with the weak and not the other way around. And the strong should not expect the weak to bear with them, with us. Next, stop passing judgment on one another. Romans says that, chapter 14 and 15 says that several times. Stop passing judgment on one another. Again, it doesn't mean we don't have differences and it doesn't mean we don't share those differences. It just says we don't have to judge one another. We can share openly what we believe and what we understand the scriptures to teach. But we put ourselves in the place of God when we begin to judge others. Leave the judging to God. Next, we live and die and belong to the Lord. Scripture says we belong to the Lord. So whether we live to the Lord, whether we die to the Lord, we do it all to the Lord. And we belong to one another, Romans 12, verse 5 says. And so Romans 14, verse 15 says, act in love. Act in love. Before you say something, before you send that message, before you talk about someone, ask yourself, is this acting in love? love. Because if the answer to that is no, then there aren't any other questions that should come after it. The matter is settled. Next, do not destroy your sister or brother for whom Christ died by what you do. That is such a powerful, powerful statement to me. When we consider the impact we have on another person, especially someone with who we have doctrinal disagreements with, important doctrinal disagreements with, We need to tread lightly and and be careful because we need to tell ourselves before we say or do anything, Jesus died for this person. They were so important to him that he came from heaven and gave his life for them. And so now let's ask, how does my concern measure up to that? (laughs) 
do not destroy your sister or brother for whom Christ died by what you do. And do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. You may think that you're doing something good and you may be right, but if it's not done in love and humility and consideration and respect, then it will be spoken of as evil. We'll say it several times today, but that great passage in Ephesians 4 verse 15, that we are to be speaking the truth as Stan shared around the table, but we are to speak the truth how? In love. In love. Next, the kingdom of God is not about your preferences. I realize that's a shock to some of us, but it's really not. The kingdom of God is not about your preferences. The kingdom of God, Romans 14 verse 17 says, is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That is what the kingdom of God is all about. So let's focus on those things, shall we? That's what Paul tells us to do. And if you're here to get your way, you are in the wrong place. There are places you can go and be served and have all of your preferences met and get your way every single time. Burger King is one of them, or so they say. But the church is not. You don't get your way here. You get the way of the cross here. Matt Smedhurst recently wrote, if your commitment to church is contingent upon all your preferences, it's not God you go there to worship, but yourself. Yikes. You are the words and the music. You, God, are the song that I sing. You are the melody. You are the harmony. Praise to your name I will bring. You are the Lord of Lords. You are the mighty God. You are the King of all kings. So now I give back to you the song that you gave to me. You, God, are the song that I sing. Not me. Wade shared during his prayer about power and during his comments about power, and we see a a lot of that. I think he's exactly right. A lot of the things that we see in our culture are about power, power the way the world measures it. And Jesus comes along and he has all the power and he could do anything he wants and he could have anybody do anything that he wants them to do and he gave it all up. In the words of Philippians 2, he emptied himself and found his power in the way of the cross and gave his life. No one took it from him. He says that specifically in John 10 because he didn't have to stay on that cross. He could have called all those angels. He could have brought down firebolts from heaven, but he did not. Why? Because just as Gary led us in before we partook of this wonderful memorial as Stan led us, it's because he loved me so. Be about the power the way Jesus sees it. The power that says, I'm giving my way up for you. And we don't do that arrogantly. We don't do that proudly. We don't do that to try to gain uh, compliments. We do that because that's what Jesus did for us. And our most important concern is no longer ourselves, but it is this person for whom Christ died.
And so just a few more from last week. Don't cause your sister or brother to fall. Don't go against your own conscience. And our focus is on our neighbor, not ourselves. And again, what we're talking about in these sermons is not easy. It sounds easy enough, but it's not. To not cause your brother or sister to fall and to not go against your conscience and to put your neighbor's views and preferences and desires and needs above your own, it's hard to do all of that. It's not easy, but that's our call. And so the last two, accept one another just as Christ accepted you and maintain a spirit of unity. Maintain a spirit of unity. Now in the rest of Romans chapter 15, Paul gives an application. He's talked about this. He's led up to it for, uh, you could say 11 chapters. You could say 13 chapters. And now he gets to this great message and this great call. And it's this application beginning in Romans 15 verse 8, where he talks about the Jewish Christian and the Gentile Christian worshiping together in unity in spite of their diverse theology, background, history, ethnic background, all of it. And I think as we consider this point, it helps us to understand what Paul meant in Romans 14, verse 1. Accept one another then without giving too much attention to disputable matters. And I'm not sure what disputable matters exactly are, but I know what Paul says is not one of them. And that's for there to be division and selfishness between a Jewish Christian and a non-Jewish Christian. Because that's what he attacks in Romans chapter 15. Beginning at verse 8, I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, I myself am convinced, brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness. Can we say that about each other? With whom we disagree? Can we start from there? That assumption that says you, even though we disagree and sometimes strongly, you are full of goodness. I don't doubt that. I don't doubt your ethics. I don't doubt your motives. I don't doubt your love for Jesus. I don't doubt your love for his word. We disagree on this one. But that is a far thing from saying, you don't love the Lord and you don't care what the Bible says. And I fear sometimes that with our differences of doctrine, that's where we start from. And that's wrong. I am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Yet I have written you quite boldly, I'll say. Thanks a lot, Paul. On some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. Paul says, this is a hard topic. It's hard for me to write. It's hard for you to hear. It's harder for all of us to do, but it's the will of God. Verse 23 of Romans 15. Now that there is no more place for me to come to work in these regions, what he had been talking about where he was. He had had never been to Rome. 
which is going to be amazing when we read chapter 16 because he tells about 100 people, hello. It's amazing, well, maybe not 100. Since I've been longing for many years to visit you, it never been, and he will ultimately get there, but he will be under arrest. He'll be traveling on his appeal to Caesar. Verse 24, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Isn't it great that Paul could speak so strongly to them in such a confrontive way and then say, oh, by the way, when I get there, I hope you'll have some money made for me so that I can continue this ministry. (laughs) He doesn't see any contradiction there at all and neither should we. Because just as was said earlier, he spoke the truth. He spoke the truth. And in the verses that follow, he says, look, I'm, I'm on my way to share a gift that some of the Gentile Christians in Macedonia and Achaia and other places have put together for their Jewish brothers and sisters who are struggling right now. That's what the church is supposed to be. You know, as we think about this issue, that Paul speaks about here. We think, you know, if, if they just had said, you know, when they met in that Jerusalem conference in Acts 15 and Galatians 1, when Paul interacted with the uh, other, Jew, other Christian leaders in Acts 11 after baptizing Cornelius in his household, if they had just decided, you know, this is a powder keg. I mean, this thing is gonna blow up on us. We start accepting Gentiles into the church without asking the men to be circumcised, without asking them to keep the law of Moses, it's gonna be a nightmare. It's gonna be a bloodbath. We're gonna upset a whole bunch of people. Wouldn't it be easier if we just go the easy route? Let's go the way that nobody will be offended and let's just tell the Gentiles, look, circumcision in the law has been in our uh, family all these centuries. Why don't you just go ahead and do this for us. But they didn't do it that way. They did it the hard way. They did it the way they knew would blow up on them because they know how deeply. Circumcision had been around since the days of Abraham 2,000 years before this time. They had fought wars over that. And now there's this extraordinary giving of the Holy Spirit upon these non-Jewish people, these Gentiles. Can anyone forbid them to be baptized? They've received the Spirit just like we did on the day of Pentecost, Peter asked. And in chapter 11 of Acts, they decide, well, look, God has done this. How can we turn it away? Which sounded good and it was the right thing to do, but boy, they struggled. And Romans is part of the reason why we know that. Because even decades later, until the end of the first century, they were still struggling with this question. This is very likely, as I said, one of the reasons, if not the main reason for Paul writing this letter. So that Christians could have unity and diversity. So that Christians of different theological, racial, ethnic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, could worship together in the same church and have their differences and love each other and be one in Christ Jesus. That's what Jesus expected of his church in the first century in Rome and Ephesus and all those other places. And that is exactly what he expects of us here today. And that is exactly what will tell this community around us in all the world that we are his. 
we are his. It doesn't mean we're going to do that easily. It doesn't mean we're not going to have bumps in the road and trouble along the way, just as they did. But we are committed to that exact thing. So some assumptions. Number one, we will not all agree on all points of doctrine. I told you all that last week. Some of you are just wrong. You don't agree with me. So, I, you know, it's just not going to happen. I get that. We will not all agree on every point of doctrine. They didn't in Rome. They didn't in Corinth. They didn't in Ephesus. We won't hear either. Randy Harris of Abilene Christian writes, I do not see any way that we can avoid doctrinal disagreement. We could solve this problem by appointing a pope or a preaching office of the church. And he writes, I am ready to serve. (laughs) But in churches of Christ, we have believed individuals and congregations must study scriptures for themselves and act accordingly. At times we reveal a romantic naivete when, and we think that we will all reach the same conclusions on every matter. But it's pretty clear that this has not happened, is not happening, and will not happen anytime in the near future. And I agree. But our unity is not based on our uniformity. One of the great things and one of the most challenging things about the church is that we are different. We are diverse, but in that diversity, we can still have unity. Number two, unity and uniformity are not the same. They are not the same. And we've spoken a lot about that, and you can see the passages there as well. We won't have complete uniformity, but we can have unity and diversity. In the midst of talking about their different gifts and their different challenges, Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Number three, doctrine is important. I don't want anybody to leave these last two sermons and say, Bill doesn't care about doctrine. That is not true. That is not true. Bill does believe that what we're talking about in these sermons is also doctrine. But doctrine matters. Doctrine is important. We come to some conclusions and convictions about what we believe, and we put those beliefs into practice in our life and in our teaching. What a person believes is important. Doctrine matters. None of the things Paul says in Romans 14 through 15 changes that. None of the things I'm sharing in these lessons gives us an excuse or permission to not study God's word, to not seek to understand it, to not obey it to the very best of our ability, and to not share it with others in the midst of respect and humility and consideration and love. Again, quoting Randy Harris, he says, I will not claim all you need to do is love each other and problems will go away. Nor will I create a final resolution to all our troubles. See, those are the two extremes. One is that if we'll just love each other, none of those things will matter. And the other is we'll just figure out the right answers to everything and all agree. (laughs) Neither of those is correct. What I will suggest, Randy Harris writes, is that if we can accept certain principles as true, we may find an approach that does not perceive doctrinal disagreement as a take-no-prisoners war. Can we do that, please? Can we have our doctrinal disagreements with each other? And yes, even with our religious neighbors. And not look at it as a take-no-prisoners war?
Brother Harris writes, I propose that we wrap our minds around some basic concepts to help us create a healthier atmosphere in the midst of doctrinal disagreement. I begin with the principle that for all of us, doctrine matters. And again, let's not make assumptions about someone that they don't care about Jesus, that they don't care about the word of God simply because they disagree with us. That may be true with some people, but it's not true of all of them. And it's not true of most of the people that I've talked with, that I have strong disagreements over. Perhaps you are to my theological left or perhaps you are to my theological right, but for all of us, doctrine matters. I resist the notion that if you have good attitudes and are a loving group of people, then it doesn't matter what you believe. It does matter what you believe. Doctrine is the rudder that steers the ship. Doctrine matters, and the kind of doctrine we accept either makes us spiritually healthy or unhealthy. And lots of scriptures there that you can look up that confirms that point, doctrine is important. Number four, not all doctrine is equally central. I want you to know I struggle with this one sometimes because this this is hard. This is hard. And yet in Romans 14 and 15, it's exactly what Paul is affirming. (laughs) You see, righteousness, peace, and joy is more central than whether we agree or not on whether or not you can eat meat that's been offered to an idol. Why? Because the kingdom of God is about righteousness and peace and joy. It's not about all the disputable matters that we're never going to 100% agree on. Jesus himself called on us to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor as ourselves as the two greatest commandments. And he told the religious leaders, pronounced woes on them, in fact, in, in Matthew 23, verses 23 and 24, because they were majoring in the minors and not majoring in the majors. And he said, they're all important. But just as Hosea said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It doesn't mean sacrifice isn't important. It just means that it can't trump mercy. Number five, it is not always doctrine about which we disagree. (laughs) Unless, of course, you're disagreeing with me. Then it is about doctrine. We feel that way, don't we? Some, most of the time, I believe, it's preference, not doctrine, that we squabble about. As Brother F. Lagarde Smith says, is my discontent a matter of conscience or comfort zone? The wider latitude which ought to be given to others instead of insisting on my own personal comfort zone begins to narrow quickly when I can no longer worship in good conscience. That is true. But Brother Smith writes, on this one, I've got to be truly honest with myself. The particular way in which I feel most comfortable worshiping God has a funny way of turning into a doctrinal issue when no real doctrinal issue might be at stake. That's the human side of us, and we have to watch it. Nor are all legitimate doctrinal differences in themselves matters of conscience. What are we doing as a congregation that crosses the line from mere style to biblical error? It's a good question for us to ask. I may or may not like the raising of hands, Brother Smith writes, in worship, for example, but I could hardly deny that there is biblical precedent for raising holy hands to God in prayer. I agree with Brother Smith. It's not my preference. I'm not comfortable doing that in public. And we certainly must not be divisive over it. But that is a far cry from me claiming that it is unscriptural. When 1 Timothy 2 verse 8 tells us to do that exact thing, to raise holy hands in prayer. 
We're studying about the Holy Spirit in our Bible class on Sunday mornings. We just started last week in the Family Life Center. And guess what? We're not going to all agree on that, on a lot of the things that are there. But it doesn't mean we don't love God. It doesn't mean we don't love each other. It doesn't mean we don't love the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Number six, we all interpret Scripture. If this were not the case, we could read Romans 14 through 15 without comment and be done. Actually, there's some moments when I wish I would have done that. You might say, I don't interpret Scripture, Bill. I take it literally. It says what it means, and it means what it says. Well, you have just described exactly how you interpret Scripture. That is your model. And that's not even accurate or true. Because if it were, we would have a lot of church members walking around with one eye plucked out and one hand cut off, seeing how that's what Jesus literally said we should do if our hand or eye causes us to sin. Number seven, there are degrees of fellowship. This is another thing that we practice without realizing or recognizing it, that there are degrees or levels or categories of fellowship. As respected Christian leaders through the years, such as Brother Bill Humble and Brother Lagarde Smith, have acknowledged There can be some sense of limited fellowship with those with whom we have some beliefs in common, but are not in agreement on other important questions and issues of doctrine. It is recognizing that we may have different degrees of relationship and fellowship with those with whom we have much or little in common. There are some who believe in God, but that's about all that we have in common. There are others who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. There are some who believe the Bible to be the inspired and authoritative word of God. Still others who believe that baptism is a part of the response of faith. We have things in common with all of those and things that we don't share in common with all of those. And so we're going to be closer and have deeper fellowship with those that we have perhaps more in common with, but it doesn't mean we have no relationship with the others. We have so much more in common than we do different. We will likely have some degree of relationship and fellowship with each of these based at least partly on those beliefs and practices we share in common. So I want to share with you just briefly the categories that Brother Smith lists in his book, Who is My Brother? First of all, universal fellowship. This is the family of mankind. This is all humanity. Why? Because we're all created in the image of God. That may be the only thing you have in common with somebody. They may be an atheist. They may think we're all here by accident. They may not care about anybody but themselves, but they were made in the image of God. And we have that in common, whether they acknowledge it or not. Second one is faith fellowship. This is like family, people who are like family to us. In Christ, those who are coming to faith in Jesus or have some belief in Christ, but have not declared Jesus their Lord and been immersed into Christ. Third is those who have. (laughs) The extended family, the in Christ fellowship, our fellow Christians. Fourth is conscience fellowship. This is close family. This recognizes the fact that not all brothers and sisters in Christ have precisely the same understanding of how God has called us to work and worship within the kingdom. It provides elbow room for the exercise of individual and collective conscience, even for enclaves of special close family fellowship among groups of congregations within the wider extended family. Finally, congregational fellowship. This is the immediate family. This is the local congregation of which I am a member, West Irwin Church of Christ. But as we have seen in Romans 14 and 15, and as the rest of the New Testament confirms, even within congregational fellowship, There is room and space for learning and growth and maturing. 
And therefore, by necessity, there is also room for differing opinions and beliefs about what the Holy Spirit calls, in Romans 14, disputable matters. Again, it should not be a take-no-prisoners war. We can acknowledge what we have in common and not treat those with whom we disagree as if they don't believe in God at all. And it doesn't lessen the things that we don't have in common, and it doesn't make them less important, and it doesn't mean that we don't talk about them. But it does mean that we start from that perspective of love and humility and respect and consideration. Lastly, God will be the final judge. We all believe this, right? Don't we? That God will judge everything, everyone, including ourselves. Jesus teaches this in several of his parables, yet Paul feels the need to remind the Roman Christians of this. And the Holy Spirit felt the need to remind us about it as well. I don't know about you, but I imagine that I will be surprised when I get to heaven. I will see some people there that I didn't expect to be there. And I will not see some there that I fully expected would be there. Why is that? That's because I am human. It's because I believe that God exists and that I'm not him and that he, not Bill, will be the final judge. And I know you're all relieved to hear me say that. God will be the final judge. Since he is the only one who knows everything about a person, including their deepest motives and values at the core of their heart and soul. And that's the point Paul makes in Romans 14 and 15. As Brother Smith says, there is a principle inherent there that all matters of conscience will ultimately be judged, not by us, but by God. We will not answer eternally to anyone else for what we believe or for how we worship God, and no one will answer to us. There is one God and one ultimate judge. What kinds of issues was Paul talking about in Romans 14 and 15? Personal preferences? We'd like to think that, wouldn't we? Oh, those issues were not as important as the issues I have. Well, these were issues of utmost importance. Some of them felt that someone was committing idolatry, worshiping something as God that was not God if they ate that meat. It was most definitely a matter of conscience. It would be ignorant and arrogant for us to think that their issues were less important than ours. That they were somehow not as serious as the issues we fight over and over which we have broken fellowship. And yet Paul tells them, hang in there and love each other and work through this. So how does this teaching apply to us? Again, while Paul is not speaking about core issues of the gospel, like the one he spoke about in the latter part of Romans 15, I believe he would apply this teaching to many of the things about which I have strong convictions, and yet others might disagree or feel less strongly about. In this passage, Paul, guided by the Holy Spirit, calls on Christians to be willing to move to their right and to their left for the sake of their sister or brother in Christ. If that is not the case, then the passage really has no application to the weaker or stronger brother or sister, only the more conservative or less conservative. Do we move only to our right in accepting others? And if we never move to our left, how can we expect others who are to the right of us to move to their left? There are people to the right of us. Are you surprised? (laughs) There are churches that are more conservative than West Irwin Church of Christ. Are you surprised? Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. 
But would you consider them brethren? Well, of course you would. They're more conservative after all, not less. Would you expect them to consider us brethren? But we're to their left. Others such as those who, for example, believe in only one shared cup for communion or that churches can't work together to support ministries such as children's homes and missionaries or that it's a sin to eat in the church facilities. There are churches of Christ that believe all of those things. We would consider them brethren. Is it any different for them than it would be for us to accept us who are less conservative than they are? And will we ever be challenged or have any real opportunity to grow in our faith and understanding and to help each other grow if that is not the case? We cannot go so far that we have gone against our own conscience. And sometimes that means that brethren must part. Sometimes that means that brethren can't worship together on a regular basis. We must speak. It must be the truth that we speak, but we must speak it in love. And even if we must part, we do so as brothers and sisters with mutual respect, consideration, and love. But we can accept one another in spite of our differences in many, many areas without violating our conscience and without breaking our fellowship. It is unity, not uniformity. It's a salad, not a smoothie. It's unity in diversity. Just as we sang with the kids in kids' time last Sunday, and they'll know we are Christians by our, what? By our total agreement on every single doctrinal issue. They'll know we are Christians by our love. So let's close, and I apologize. I'm I'm playing that birthday card today and making a longer sermon. Three quotes as we conclude today. Number one, on our sense of entitlement. On our sense of entitlement. This quote is from Brett Hansen in a wonderful book, Unoffendable, that my brother and friend, co-minister Davey Carter, recommended. Our sense of entitlement to anger is directly proportional to our perception of our own relative innocence. In other words, how angry I am, how offended I am, is based on how righteous I think of myself and the level to which I forget. What was said earlier in this sermon, in this service? as we gathered around the table, that without the love and blood of Jesus Christ, none of us would have hope. When we are offended with our sister or brother, it may very well be that it is less because of their errors and sins and more because of our lack of self-awareness of our own limitations and sinfulness because of our own self-righteousness. Someone might say, but Bill, they're erring brothers. And I like what someone responded with that one time when they said, well, that's the only kind of brothers I got airing and I'm one too this is when we must choose will we settle for our own self-righteousness or will we choose the righteousness of God that comes by faith in Christ Jesus secondly on sacrificing ourselves this quote is from coach Tony Tony Dungy in his devotional book the one year uncommon life daily challenge he writes fighting the good fight is less about the moments of grandeur that we often dream of and more about daily taking up our cross and sacrificing ourselves and our own wants and desires for those around us. Less about the moments of grandeur and more about just slugging away day after day, unselfishly sacrificing for the sake of others. Well, that may not sound very glamorous, but it gives us exactly the same focus as our Lord Jesus Christ had. 
I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And now he calls on us to be living sacrifices. And then finally, just a reminder of that great passage in Philippians 2 on the mindset of Christ. After telling them in the first four verses that this is how we're to live, we're to live with love, consideration, respect, humility, unity. He says, let me tell you what that's gonna take. It's gonna take the mindset of Christ. And here's what that looks like. Jesus left the very throne room of God and emptied himself and took upon himself human form and not just any human, but a servant. And he died the death, not just any death, but the death on a cross. And so God has highly exalted him. This is the same issue that he wrote about in Romans 14 through 15. In order to have unity and diversity in our relationships with one another, we must have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. We're here to help each other. If we can help you have that mindset or come to know him better, maybe come to know him at all. We would love the chance to do that. Come as we stand, sing our song together. Days are filled with so-